This is Roadmap to Resilience, an audio series for professionals and families who are supporting children experiencing stress and trauma. I'm Dr. Julian Ford. And I'm Dr. Amanda Zelahusky. Whether you work with children or you have children of your own, this podcast is for you. What suggestions do you have or, or what, what ways do you take care of yourself that we might learn from? Well... I like to run and swim, and that is very meditative for me, and as well as a sort of sensory, nice way of just getting away. You know, I, I have my social supports also. I think it's really important that we have people that we talk to and that we unburden ourselves to. And I certainly have people like that in my life who do that for me. It's learning for us to ask for help when we need help also, and when we need the person to talk to and acknowledge and to be able to call them up and say, Hey, I need you right now. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Great question, Julian. We should be asking yeah. everybody that because then I can start will. collecting tips. Yeah. And they will. might, people might be more creative than me. I'm actually pretty no. boring. But I, but that's because. actually when I think about how many students struggle with this and ask me about self-care and burnout, like I think they need to hear again and again that the solutions are simple, that it isn't that we all have this elaborate creative plan. We do the very things or we should be doing the very things we are telling our clients to do. So I, yeah. I love that it is simple and straightforward. Actually, yeah. my clients tell me to do that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> exactly. Say, Listen, Doc, you seem a little tense. Why don't you go out and take a <laughs> Maybe we should have this session while running. How would that go? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously, your, your point that running and swimming are good examples of, of ways of being meditative. That, I think that's, that's worth a lot because... Yeah. That that really reframes mundane activities. So now they're they're not just about getting out there or or being physically active. They really are about clearing our minds and being able to think through some of the the dilemmas and challenges that we want to help our clients with. Yeah. Right. And when I was in training, I mean, we didn't talk about productivity back then. We didn't there was weekly case conferences and supervision for a few hours a week. And all of that time was built in to the training. And I do think the field has gotten out of balance right now because we're not allowing that and we're not making as good decisions in a lot of our agencies because of that. And people aren't staying also. We're not building an expert force that stays in clinics because the pay is low and the hours are too long and you can't do the work adequately so people leave and that's not a good place for our field to be you know the first metaphor that comes to mind is what they say to you on the airplane when the oxygen masks deploy put yours on first then help your child and others around you if our healthcare providers are overwhelmed and so troubled that, you know, by the things they're hearing or dealing with, they can't function, that's not good for them and it's not good for their patients. The healthcare providers have to learn the best ways to balance their lives, just like patients need to develop the best, healthiest balances in their lives. And what I have found after more than 40 years dealing with child maltreatment, one of the most helpful things to those on the front lines is to be able to talk to people who can understand. And that's others who do similar work, 
or do the same work. What you can't do is you can't take this home. You can't go home and talk to your spouse who is not as habituated as you are. It's traumatic to them, just like it's traumatic to us. You know, and there are still things that I encounter as a professional working in this field that are overwhelming, that I have to call up a friend and colleague and talk about because I can't keep it inside my own head. I need help. I at least need to get it outside. And see, our patients do need that too. And, and some spend their whole lives holding inside some very horrible kinds of experiences. And just the experience of being able to share it, even though it doesn't take it away, it's still there. It'll still be troubling and upsetting, but it helps. It helps us healthcare providers to be able to turn to our peers who can understand. Yeah, I think the most helpful is to have a supportive supervisor that's been helpful just somebody to process that with or let them know that you had that type of a reaction or that you were really struggling to hear that information I remember I was in a practicum class one time and I had a session right before it that was just really overwhelming and there was a lot of trauma a lot of complex relationships and just like the client was really being disrespected a lot. And it was just kind of overwhelming for me. And I don't know if I would call it vicarious trauma, but I was able to walk into my prac class and that group supervision was really helpful for me to just talk to peers about it and my supervisor at the same time. But I think that any sort of group supervision is helpful, especially at practicum sites and they have group supervision to just talk about even if it's peer-to-peer group supervision, just talking about what has been challenging this week or what you might be struggling with that you heard this week, I think that's been helpful. We've had discussions about self-care. I know in my program, we've talked about that a lot. And I've heard that a lot just in general as a mental health like therapist that you should be taking care of your mental health to prevent burnout. But I do still feel like there's a lot of pressure to, you know, just keep going. You have to get your hours. You have to get this done. You can't just leave this client hanging. Well, if you take a week off of vacation, who's going to see your clients? I do still feel like there's pressure, whether or not it's really coming from somebody or if it's just the own voice in your head being like, just feeling kind of guilty for leaving clients behind or perhaps feeling like you're neglecting your clients, even though it's totally normal to take a break every once in a while and you can always have somebody kind of fill in. It's hard. I think it's hard to find good examples of self-care. I think, so I've heard of some programs who when you sign the contract with your um, placement site for your traineeship or whatever you call your internship while you're still in training, that they write in a certain number of days that you get off as vacation days into that contract. So it kind of takes all of that stress off of the trainee and it really just, they lay it up front that, oh, I get 10, 10 vacation days this year, whatever it is. I've seen that and that sounded really, really cool to me. And like just such an easy way to take that stressor away because I do think it's stressful to ask for time off when you're only working somewhere technically part-time 
even though you are doing all these other things as well. And, you know, when I was an undergrad, I was like, I'll do anything to get into this program. Like, <laughs> this is really all I want to do. And so like the first probably year and a half, I was, you know, not setting good work boundaries. And that's something that I had to learn because it did kind of catch up to me. And so that's been the most important thing as well with my own self-care is only working on those days I'm supposed to be working at that site or only doing research on the days that I have designated as my research days. And if I say I'm going to stop working at a certain time, like respecting myself by honoring that and scheduling fun things on the weekends. I used to think that you can't have fun in grad school because... (laughs) You should be working all the time. And you, so, can? you can have fun in grad school. You Imagine. can. <laughs> yeah, you actually can. So um, that was something as well. I used to think, you know, well, if I'm not working every day on the weekend, then I'm going to be behind. Um, whereas now I can say if I can take Saturdays off or Sundays off and actually scheduling fun events, um, kind of just like the positive event planning or things like that, that we do with clients. Um, one cool thing about being in this field is like, I know the tips and tricks to, to kind of help myself enjoy life a little bit more. So I try to use some of those. Yeah. And the earlier you establish those habits that you're describing, the more you're going to be able to carry them through. I mean, for those of you who want to be academics or researchers, it doesn't look that different than when you were a student. So if you don't figure out how to have fun on the weekends and put in those boundaries, you will just continue to operate at that level that you did as a graduate student. And that has some real serious effects long-term. So And get a therapist. I love my therapist. I think that I even came into this program thinking that therapy is like, oh, like I shouldn't need therapy if I'm going to be a therapist. And then, you know, by whatever, the end of year one, I'm, that's a part of my self-care. So Mm -hmm. I think getting a therapist too, and it helps you understand as well, just how hard it is to find a therapist and to find one that you really like and that you really vibe with and that you feel like your therapeutic relationship is fun or whatever you're, you're looking for and dealing with the financial piece and seeing if you can find like a free therapist through your program or something like that. I think that having a therapist is a great idea, especially if you want to work with traumatized populations. I think that I try to apply principles that I learn about on an academic level and that I try to implement in practice into the way that I care for myself and into the way I interact with other staff. I think an integral part of any trauma-informed care model or system is how are we taking care of our staff or how are we helping our staff members to have self build that self-awareness in themselves to to understand how their own experiences, their history are influencing where they are today and how to take the time to they to themselves regulate themselves, relate with others and reason, take time to reflect to reflect on on ourselves and our experiences. Where I truly grew was being a part of a dialectical behavior therapy team at the Children's Hospital 
where the focus of DBT is not only on applying those skills to how we work with our clients, with our patients, but also to how we work with ourselves and each other on the team at our team meetings, always practicing mindfulness exercises, practicing applying the DBT skills to how we're managing um, our own work and how we're working together with each other has provided me with wonderful opportunities to integrate those skills into my life as well. You know, for myself and my colleagues who are you know, mental health clinicians and other disciplines, other service sectors, because we're very interdisciplinary in our program. I think for everybody, being able to make that effort to, to have opportunities to be able to you know, debrief with each other. We do that every week, uh, regardless of what we all have going on. We take at least 30 minutes a week just to debrief about what's going, you know, how are we doing? How are we feeling about our cases? Not necessarily case staffing, but we're talking about the cases, but just giving us a time to debrief with each other. And so, you know, I think that we're a fairly tight knit group and we're able to be there for each other. And I think that that matters. And then I think the other piece is, you know, I really pushed with our program to, you know, allow staff just to, you know, take a mental health day. Right. If you need a day off, take it. Uh, it will pick up whatever we need to for that person. And so rather than it being something that just happens every once in a while or sort of a, a luxury, making it just part of our practice. And, you know, everyone who's with our with the program, you know, we're with it for a reason. We're very passionate about what we do. But we also have to just be really careful that we can compartmentalize it and still be healthy, healthy individuals outside of work. When my husband was alive, he wouldn't let me talk about work at all. <laughs> he said, this is, your, this is where you come home to be safe, you know, from the stories and from everything else that you're doing. So we're not going to talk about your work. Of course, at that time, we didn't have the cell phones that we have now. So I had the beeper. I had a beeper. Mm. And he hated that beeper. So um, I used to have to put down the beeper somewhere where I couldn't hear it to tell people that I wasn't available. And, and that was hard. But what I learned to do over the years is, as soon as the door closes in my car, I'm done. You know, I'm, I'm done. So there are a couple of things that I enjoy, and that is I'm a sports spectator. Yeah, I love sports. There's nothing that will take my mind off of what I'm doing at work other than sports. I also read, and it's very interesting what I read. So people are always saying, oh, the newest psychology, but I'm like, uh-uh. That is not what I'm going to do when I go home. So I have been doing historical mystery books forever because I also have four kids and nine grandchildren. So mm. oh. that also takes care of my yeah. whatever other free time I could possibly have. <laughs> just, just I'll, I'll use our department of pediatrics as an example. You know, our experience through the pandemic and, you know, so where there's this added awareness of the additional stress was that when we made systems work well for the pediatricians, they did better. So when we figured out all that telemedicine stuff, when we, when we gave them support so their patients could get what they need, when we decreased the pediatrician's level of frustration about not being able to link their child into the right level of care, the pediatricians did better. Um, when we just tried to add wellness activities and mindfulness and like I mean, things that are great. Now, I, you know, these are wonderful things, but if you're, if you're giving someone who's already doing, you know, all of these things and saying, and I have a solution for you, and it only requires you to do 
two more things. That's a really hard selling point. So I, I think it's this balance of you know making wellness activities and resiliency-based activities for pediatricians available, making sure that there is education about burnout, secondary traumatic stress, making that, I mean, that should be part of every Grand Rounds curriculum. That should be part of every residency training program. So, you know, not, not kind of as a one-off, but just part and parcel with how we train folks. But then at the same time, one of the major protectors of burnout and secondary traumatic stress is feeling like you're able to do a good job and you can care for your patients. And so, you know, investing in all of those support linkage potential, you know, figuring out how do we, you know, connect the dots. What I talked about with the external environment piece for how do we make trauma screening and response work? Why are we doing that? Like, why is it that a group who got funded out of SAMHSA is going to pediatric clinics and creating a specific pathways and linkages just for traumatized kiddos so that they can get linked from primary care to the right provider? Why does that not already exist for all kids with all types of mental health and distress? So, so there are real things that as a system or as systems that have to link across each other that we can be doing that if we make it so that the pediatrician feels like they're actually doing a good job and that they can get the care that is needed for their patients, you know, those are all things that really do buffer against the, the real stresses, the real pressures, um, the real risk for burnout. But if, but if we say, you know, that's not worth our investment, that's not worth our time, but we're going to do uh, some extra wellness classes for you. I, I think we miss an opportunity. Um, and, and I think we miss uh, a chance to really kind of, you know, recognize that being a pediatrician is a hard job. And the more that we can support the pediatricians in actually doing what they've been trained to do while educating, while having access to supports, um, really, I think, is, is the way to kind of help minimize some of the, the stress and burnout that, that we are seeing quite a bit of these days. We all have our own legacies and we all have to think about, you know, why did we even come into this profession? You know, why did we come into these helping and mental health, um, you know, sort of this world? Of course, all of us want to have a positive sort of impact, but there's something in each of our personal histories that brings us there. But in terms of what I've been doing, when I was training, I did this more intentionally and have had to revisit now in the pandemic some of those strategies or ways of making sure that I am bringing my most capable, emotionally open and present person to the room. So I know for myself, I can give up pretty much every anything in life except important relationships and sleep. So for me, like I was so intentional about my sleep and I'm not saying that was always great despite my best efforts, but I really prioritize sleep for myself. The second thing was for myself, you know, I really need to be out in nature and, you know, get a walk, like get some activity. And I didn't get to it on many days, but I, it was, it was like, if I had time and sometimes it was just 20 minutes and two blocks of walking, but I would be out. So, you know, we all do this in some way in our life, but I think there's this experience of the pandemic has made me, I think, much more intentional about making sure that those rituals are really built in. 
I think the second piece of it for me was, so I'm a parent of a preschooler and I have found it to be actually incredibly valuable for the families I work with to even sometimes hear about these day-to-day challenges because they get that, you know, we get it. (laughs) And I'm not pretending to be some other version of me because I think people can really relate to authentic experiences and they can tell when you come from a place of sharing this experience as a way to collaborate around solving some of the concerns of the parents. So if I'm able to use some of my experiences as a parent or human being in the service of addressing another parent's need, and some of it might be to just normalize and validate what they're, you know, a tough morning for them, where they didn't respond to their child in the most optimal way they had hoped for, or, um, you know, just the isolation piece of it. For me, one of my biggest sort of, I would call it grief um, in the pandemic, and, and the loss has been that most of my family, especially my parents, live fairly, you know, pretty far away. And not being able to see my parents has been a huge loss for me. They have had some pretty significant health concerns. And I have been very aware of what that brings up for me. Um, So when I'm working with families who have experienced traumatic bereavement during this time, either related or unrelated to the pandemic, um, I know that that's gonna trigger a lot for me. Um, So my approach to addressing that has been to build actually a peer supervision practice um, so that I can share this. Um, share my kind of work with families um, so that I have my own village to support my work as a professional to support parents. Um, So I think individual sort of these rituals and skills are important, but also as we tell parents, building our own professional village is also important. I color my house pink. (laughs) (laughs) And my decorator told me I was going to get so sick of it and it was a terrible thing to do. (laughs) I said, no, I just want to have really vibrant, gorgeous colors around me all the time. I take time to be with my friends. I try to focus on gratitude gratitude, 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 you know, ultimately to me, it's been a privilege really that, wow, I never imagined that I'd be able to talk to children that other people didn't know how to talk to. I didn't know how did I learn that? How did I get that? I didn't even know I could do it. But so I understand it as a privilege and I am in awe of of it in a way of just sort of a ability that other people can have too, that I can share. And um, I'm naturally telling you all this, but I'm not honestly that good taking care of myself. So my kids tell me, give me your retirement plan and have it on my desk in the next two weeks. (laughs) I try to have people around me that care about me a lot so that I can remind myself to uh, do things for self-care. I heard one other thing that you said, and I've seen something throughout this conversation and that is how much you truly, on a personal level, enjoy the children who you work with. Yeah, I do. I do. They make me so happy. And when they feel that from me, they feel a lot of validation. And I tell them, I say, how did I become an expert? I said, I didn't know a thing. I just listened to kids like you. 
So please teach me, teach me more. Mm-hmm. So I really do. I, I think that that helps to, to know that the kids do have a driving force towards wellness. It's in there. Wellness is where they want to go. Healthy adaptation is what they want. And you're just coming along for the ride and helping them get there. So yes, that does help. Loving the kids a lot. So in this episode, we we heard from people from a variety of backgrounds, professional, personal, cultural, racial, ethnic, and all have in common that they're helpers who are working with children and families and helping them recover from trauma and find that roadmap to resilience. I thought it was so important that we heard from different voices. So it's very clear that there's no one size fits all when it comes to taking care of ourselves as helpers. And by the way, when I, when I say helpers, I'm, I don't want to just include professionals because I think the key helpers out there are often parents, they're mentors, they're community members who take kids under their wings. Um, and then there are those of us who also have the privilege of doing work professionally and therapeutically with children. The fact that we all need to take care of ourselves, we all need to put on that oxygen mask first so that we are able to actually be present and really focus on meeting the needs and addressing the concerns of kids and families. That's that's the theme that really came through to me. And there are ways to do that that have to do with what we do when we're right there talking with or meeting with a child or a family. And there also are ways that have to do with the, the systems and the organizations in which we work because where we work whether it's in a large organization or on a solo individual practice, that we have a structure and we have support for our our wellness. And then we have to take that out. And we have to make sure that, uh, as several of our commentators said, that that there is a separate life that we have outside of work. And in that life, we have to be thinking about things like health and wellness. It's a responsibility, even though it can also be a great pleasure. So that's what really jumped out at me, Amanda. What about you? Yeah, I was really just very moved by the fact that when we asked all these guests this question, they had their go-to strategies at the ready. I mean, they didn't really hesitate to think about it. And I think that's such a good lesson for all of us that it's important to have strategies that you can go to to take care of yourself, both at work, but also in other facets of your life. So I appreciated hearing about the creativity and range of types of strategies that were, you know, people's kind of go-to methods. So I'm curious for you, Julian, what do you do to take care of yourself to support your own well-being as a trauma care provider, researcher, scholar, all of those things? Well, having done this for more years than I want to say, <laughs> several <laughs> decades, I have to say that, that that's always been something that's really important and I'm not that great at it. But the, the two things that really come to mind, Amanda, are when I'm actually with a child or family or both, it is really important to me to focus on what is most important to them and to just put everything else aside. Now, that doesn't mean that I forget about all the other worries and concerns that I have, and I'm still thinking about many other things, but my thought process really needs to focus in on this individual or this family. And when I do that, I actually feel often rejuvenated after a session, even when it's really hard work, because I know that we've tapped into something that's really important and it's good for me, even though the primary aim is that it should be good for the family and the child. And then I have to say that outside of work, I do try to do things like 
work out, keep a very regular schedule. I don't get enough sleep, but I try. Um, and spending time with the, the people who I care most about and doing things that I really value. So it's pretty obvious in some ways, and it's awfully difficult to keep that work-life balance. But that's that's what I strive to do. How about you? How do you take care of yourself? Yeah, so I think I'll, I'll piggyback on what we heard from a lot of our, our guests and also that you just mentioned. Um, physical activity has come to be a very important strategy for me, just whether that's going for a walk going running, just being outside, even for a very brief period of time, even when I think I don't want to, and I have to kind of force myself to do that. I'm always so happy as soon as I get a few minutes into it and realize how important that is for me just to even give myself that creative break, the mind space, you know, away from demands and stressors and people who need me and tasks that are awaiting me just to kind of clear my mind a bit. So that's come to be very important to me. But I will say related to that, that my strategies have changed over time. And so I think it's important for people to remember that what worked for you at another stage or season of your life may not work anymore. I used to be huge into hobbies and crafts and creative artistic things. And then I had kids. And so there's just no more time for a lot of that right now in this season of my life. And so rather than sort of lament and rail against that, I've come to a place of, okay, well, what's going to work for me right now? And maybe I'll come back to that stuff someday. But for now, what are some other strategies that can work? And so I think that was really helpful to hear from a lot of our guests too, that people's strategies have changed over time and to just be open to that. Um, the other thing I would say that's been helpful for me just as, I guess, sort of a cognitive self-care strategy is moving away from feeling like things are permanent. And so forcing myself to recognize that, you know, what's the next right thing for me to focus on that, you know, when I make decisions, they don't have to be forever. I can come back and reevaluate what makes sense. And that's actually been pretty emotionally liberating rather than just feeling like the weight of whether that's a professional decision you're trying to make a decision in your clinical care as a you know trauma clinician that well this is the approach we're going to take right now and we're going to see if it works rather than feeling like I've committed to this sort of treatment plan forever that's been really just a helpful strategy is what's working right now and it works until it doesn't. And that's okay to come back and reevaluate that. And I use that strategy with my family too, you know, so I think those are some things that have been really, really helpful for me, especially in the last couple of years. You know, that it's so great to hear that you remind us that we're all imperfect and we're all doing our best and we're all still growing and learning grasshopper. So (laughs) no matter how long we've been in in this, whether it's as a parent, a grandparent, in my case, Mm -hmm. as a a therapist, a clinician, we're, we're all still growing. And as we grow, the approach that we take to taking care of ourselves has to change. I, I really appreciate you saying that some things that I did 40 years ago, I'm still doing, but other things I've had to change exactly for the same reason, because my life has changed and the circumstances and adapting to that has been very important. But I was especially, especially relieved to hear you say that we don't always have to make exactly the right decision, mm-hmm. or maybe the decision that we make is the right one, but we're not always going to know it right at the moment. And dealing with that sense of uncertainty is an important part of self-care and just having the permission to make decisions, even when we don't know if it's absolutely the perfect decision. So thank you for that. That was very helpful. Yeah. I think it's also at, at the crux of what resilience is, right? This sort of openness and adaptability to deal with what comes in the way that makes sense at that time and surrounding yourself with the supports that enable you to move through it. 
So this is the last episode of Roadmap to Resilience. Whether you've listened to all 16 of our full-length episodes or you jumped around to the topics that most apply to you and your professional or personal circumstances, we hope you now feel better equipped to support the children in your life. And don't forget that you can go back to any of the episodes at any time for a refresher. And in this episode especially, but really throughout the whole series, we hope you feel encouraged. You're not alone in the work that you do, in the caring that you provide for children, in the ways in which you help children find the, the, the sense of hope and the, the sense of caring and support that enables them to be resilient. We're all doing this together. And I think that these episodes have really illustrated how no matter what perspective we take, there are so many ways that we can help children and families find a pathway to resilience and a roadmap to resilience, even after they've experienced trauma. And I know we mention it at the end of every episode, but we just want to highlight again, if there's someone in your life who you think would resonate with these conversations, go ahead and share a link with them. As we've spoken about several times, providing trauma-informed care to children is a collective effort that we can all play a part in. And sometimes the direct suggestion from a friend or a loved one or a trusted colleague and saying, hey, I think this episode could be really helpful for you. Go ahead, give it a listen, can make all the difference in the world. And if you found one thing or several things in these episodes that has been encouraging for you or that gives you an idea that perhaps you had just begun to develop or hadn't even thought of, apply it. Try out anything that you think could be helpful from any of these episodes and know that there, there is no single path. There are many roadmaps to resilience. It's just the process of finding that roadmap that is so important. We're all exploring, we're all finding the roadmap and we hope that these comments and the insights of these wonderful professionals who are working with children and families have been helpful to you. Many thanks to our guest experts who shared their personal experiences in this episode. In order of appearance, our guests were Karen Zilberstein, Dr. David Corwin, Nicole LaPlena, Yehuda Stokes, Dr. Bianca Harper, Dr. Claudette Antunia, Dr. Brooks Keishan, Dr. Archana Basu, and Dr. Joanna Silver. Visit RoadmapToResilience.org to learn more about our guest experts, access additional videos and resources, or send us a message. If this episode piqued your interest, we'd love for you to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and let us know what you think. And if you imagine this episode would resonate with a colleague or friend, please share it. Roadmap to Resilience is a collaboration between Pandemic Parenting and the University of Connecticut School of Medicine with special thanks to the Interorganizational Child Trauma Task Force. Roadmap to Resilience is produced by my co-host, Dr. Julian Ford, myself, Dr. Amanda Zelahusky, along with Carmen Vincent and Victoria Bruick. Many thanks to Jennifer Valentine for her strategic support and to the teams at Pandemic Parenting and the Center for the Treatment of Developmental Trauma Disorders for providing promotional support. We'd also like to thank the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration's National Child Traumatic Stress Network for their financial support of this project. Thank you for joining us in supporting children in need of a roadmap to resilience.